Please turn your attention to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for we know it's through your word and your spirit that you speak to us, a word in season. We pray that we would have ears to hear and heart to receive. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've seen the sermon title, perhaps uh, you're a little uncomfortable. The sermon title is The Politics of Jesus. Anytime we get around that topic, it gets a little nerve-wracking. I mean, I, we, we just passed the family gatherings over the holidays, and I know people who say to their families when they gather together, there are two things we're not going to talk about. We're not going to talk about politics or religion. I wonder why. They're explosive topics, and it's easy, an easy way to get into misunderstandings. I mean, one of the hardest things about the pandemic was, of course, the pandemic itself, but also the politics of the pandemic. You know, the, the, the racial issues, the presidential elections, the, the, the January 6th event, the mass policies divided our country and divided our, our families and divided our friends. I heard someone observe that we all know that Jesus isn't a Democrat or a Republican, but we're all sure that Jesus would vote the exact same way we do. Why are we talking about politics, the politics of Jesus this morning? I mean, I'm not trying to blow myself up. My aim is always to be faithful to preach the text of Scripture. And you notice in this passage, the opponents of Jesus come and ask him a political question. This passage occurs in a section of growing conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities, which would culminate in Jesus being crucified on a cross. The religious authorities are the Sanhedrin, the 70-member council in charge of Judaism. And Jesus is beginning to step on their toes in his ministry. He is teaching on his own authority, not on their authority. He says, uh, I say unto you, behold, I say unto you, teaching on his own authority. He forgave sins. He cleared the temple. And so these leaders go to Jesus and say, by whose authority are you doing these things? That's the passage that, that Brad preached uh, two weeks ago. And then Jesus uh, uh, speaks the parable of the tenants against them. And today, these same leaders come to Jesus with a question to trap him. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? The questioners are Pharisees and Herodians, likely sent by the Sanhedrin. And this is a very unlikely alliance. The Pharisees are pro-Judaism, anti-Rome, the Herodians are pro-Roman, so they don't even disagree. They, they disagree with each other, but they're united in their opposition to Jesus, and they come to Jesus with this question, and let me just say this. They don't really want the answer. Verse 13, they're trying to catch him in his words. They're trying to trap him. 
And to understand the trap, you need to understand the background of this tax. It's a tax imposed by the Roman government on the province of Judea, beginning in 86. At the time, Judas the Galilean led a revolt against Rome because he saw this tax as an introduction to slavery. It was an affront to the sovereignty of God, and so he led this revolt. The revolt was squashed by the Roman government, but Jewish opposition continued. The tax itself was a denarius. It was a Roman silver coin which bore the image of Tiberius Caesar, with the words beneath that image, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, which the conservative Jew considered idolatry and blasphemy. So paying this tax was, for the conservative Jew, placing God and his people at the service of a pagan ruler. They hated it. And as a result, there, were, there was a divided opinion about this tax. The zealots, the ultra-conservative Jews, refused to pay the tax, again, because they thought that it acknowledged Caesar's authority over them, authority which belonged only to God. The Pharisees resented the tax, which they thought was humiliating, but they were willing to go along with. The Herodians, whose power ultimately came from the Roman government, supported the tax. And with that background, you can understand how loaded this question is. Jesus can't answer this question and keep everyone happy. It's kind of like asking Jesus today, do you vote Republican or do you vote Democrat? I mean, no matter how he answers that question, someone's not going to be happy about it. See, if Jesus says, don't pay the tax, the conservatives will be happy, but Jesus will be in danger of leading an insurrection against Rome. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay the tax, the Herodians will be happy, but the conservatives will be outraged because they would consider this selling God out to the Romans. Jesus is on the horns of a dilemma, you see. However he answers this question, he's going to be in hot water with someone. And that is exactly why the Pharisees and Herodians ask him this question. They want to trap him. They want to get him in trouble with someone. They want a yes or no answer, but notice Jesus does not give a yes or no answer. Instead, he gives a nuanced, wise, searching answer. And if you look at the response of his questioners, they are amazed by his wisdom. My friends, on display in this passage is the divine wisdom of Jesus, who knew exactly how to answer everyone who came to him. I'd like to look at his answer this morning. Should they pay this tax to Caesar? The larger question is, what is the relationship between God and Caesar? And I think there are three parts of Jesus' nuanced, balanced, wise answer that I want to point out. Three parts. First part is this. The legitimacy of Caesar. See, when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, he is acknowledging the legitimacy of Caesar's government and its taxes, though, uh, though it's limited, as we'll see. And to make this case uh, for the legitimacy of Caesar's government, Jesus has a very pragmatic argument. He says to his questioners, bring me a denarius. And the first thing I'd like to point out is Jesus doesn't have a denarius in his pocket. He has to ask for one. But the members of the Sanhedrin do have a denarius in their pocket. They're already carrying it and using it, in other words. They're already part of the Roman financial system. And Jesus gets this denarius, and he says, whose portrait is this? Whose inscription is this? And they say, it's Caesar's. And Jesus says, give back to Caesar's what is Caesar's. And notice, he doesn't just say give to Caesar's. He says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, there is a 
by Jesus' own recognition, a certain obligation to Caesar as ruler. He's minted these coins. They belong to him. They have his image. They're under his government. And I would suggest to you that, that Jesus has this practical assumption that they benefit from the Roman state, so they're obligated to support the state. They, they travel on the Roman roads. They, they benefit from the Roman security that makes those roads safe. They benefit from the great Pax Romana. In other words, they have a responsibility then to pay Caesar's tax. Jesus is acknowledging the, leg the legitimacy of Caesar, though he has limited power, as we're going to see. Again, in Romans 13, the, the passage that Jim just read. Romans 13 strengthens the case for the, the legitimacy of human government. Paul goes on to teach that not only is uh, human government legitimate, but it has and represents the authority of God himself because God places these rulers over us. And, and, and Paul is saying this not only when governments are good or that we voted for them. See, when Paul is writing Romans 13, you know who ruled Rome? It was Nero. Nero was a corrupt ruler. He started this fire which burned a lot of, of Rome and then he blamed it on the Christians. He was not an upstanding ruler. And yet Paul is saying, even when we have flawed rulers, they're established by God for his purposes. Kind of like the Pharaoh in Egypt in, in, in Exodus. God says, I raised him up for my purposes. Evil ruler, I raised him up for my purposes. And Jesus is picking the same thing up, the legitimacy of Caesar. Caesar is legitimate, though he's limited. And, and what Jesus is doing here, I think, is striking this wise balance. He doesn't side with his zealots. He doesn't reject government. He doesn't lead a revolt against them. Nor does he side with the Romans and give the government absolute authority or allegiance. Jesus, you see, recognized the legitimate civil duties that Christians have that do not infringe or compromise our duties to God. And one of those duties is to pay our taxes. If we benefit from Caesar, then we need to pay taxes to Caesar. One conscience-stricken taxpayer wrote the IRS, Dear sir, my conscience bothered me. Here's a 2000 I owe in back taxes. Followed by a PS. If my conscience still bothers me, I'll send the rest. <laughs> we are called as Christians to pay our taxes. We're also called to pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy 2.1, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, which we try to do here. We try to pray for our leaders, whether we voted for them or not. We try to pray for them. The Bible calls us to submit to our leaders. 1 Peter 2.13 and 14, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Jesus makes room for the legitimacy of Caesar. That's his first point. That's the first part of his answer to this loaded question. The second part of his answer is not just the legitimacy of Caesar, but the distinction between Caesar and God. When Jesus talks about what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God, he's alluding to the fact, I think, that there are two distinct but overlapping realms. In Augustine's classic, The City of God, this is his great insight. The scripture, he says, is the story of two cities, the city of man and the city of God, two kingdoms that really stem all the way from the Garden of Eden. 
that stem from this conflict between Satan and Eve, which begins a conflict between Satan's offspring and Eve's offspring. It's the storyline of two people who are at enmity with one another. It begins with Cain and Abel. And then it becomes the four nations and versus Israel. Then it becomes Babylon and Jerusalem. And then it's broadly the people of the world against the people of God. And the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God are fundamentally different. That's what Jesus is recognizing here, and that's the, the insight of, of Augustine's great work, The City of God. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God are fundamentally different. They follow different wisdoms. They have different beliefs. They have different methodologies. For example, the kingdom of this world achieves its purposes through money and politics and the sword. The kingdom of God moves forward by the gospel and Prayer. You see, when Jesus talks about what we owe Caesar and what we owe God, he's referring to these two kingdoms. Distinct, but overlapping. Go back to your high school math and think of that Venn diagram, those overlapping circles. That, that's the, that's the, the picture here, these two overlapping circles, two overlapping kingdoms that are distinct but overlapping. And that's important to hold because some people try to make these kingdoms so separate that they have nothing to do with each other. In Jesus' day, it was the zealots who resisted paying this tax, wanted to revolt against Caesar and have nothing to do with the Roman government. It's separatists who pull back and say, we want to have nothing to do with the world, nothing to do with human government. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. These kingdoms overlap. So some try to make these kingdoms completely separate, while others try to make these kingdoms completely identical. No distinction. That the church becomes the kingdom of the world with the same wisdom and the same beliefs and the same methodology. And you see, when the circles become identical, what happens is the church gets politicized. That's when the church becomes just one more special interest group. That's when the state gets idolized. That's when we start looking to the state for salvation from all of our problems. That's when we start experiencing heaven on earth. If, if the church becomes the world, we expect heaven to come on earth. And that's what, uh, uh, what Jesus is saying. He's saying the city of man is not the city of God. The city of God comes down out of heaven to earth. And so the question is, what does it look like to keep two kingdoms distinct but overlapping? The call to be a Christian is the call to be a citizen of two different kingdoms. We have responsibilities in both. There are things we owe Caesar, and there are things we owe God. Now, I suggest that a lot of people in this room already have a pretty good idea of what it means, uh, what it looks like to operate in two different kingdoms, two distinct but overlapping realms. Some of us are a manager at work, and we're also a parent at home. Realms that are distinct, that operate differently. We treat people differently in these realms. You don't try to parent your colleagues. You, know, you don't try and ground your colleagues when they do something that's not pleasing to you. By the same token, you don't try and put your children on a six-month performance improvement plan. I mean, you might want to, but we don't do that. That's not good parenting. You see, these are distinct realms and responsibilities, but they're overlapping, right? Right? Things that happen at home affect how we are at work. The, the, the things that happen at work, sometimes we bring home with us and they affect, they affect our home life. They're overlapping realms, but they're distinct. But we learn how to balance our dual responsibilities in these distinct but overlapping realms. 
The call of Christ is this call to become a citizen in two different kingdoms with two different responsibilities. This illustration from Michael Orton might clarify it further, our responsibilities in each realm. John Newton was a Christian minister. He was the author of the well-known hymn, Amazing Grace. And he was resolutely opposed to the British slave trade. And for a while, he thought about resigning from pastoral ministry and going into politics so he could do something about the slave trade. But he came to realize that the vocation that God had called him to was to preach the gospel, to administer the sacraments, and to shepherd the flock. And he came to realize that that was the best way he could affect the world. Along came his close friend and parishioner, William Wilberforce. He came to John Newton and expressed his desire to go into pastoral ministry. And John Newton actually talked him out of it. And the reason why is because he recognized that Wilberforce had special gifts for a calling in the political world that could provide help to his neighbors in ways that Newton, as the pastor, could not. Wilberforce took Newton's advice and became a British parliamentarian, and eventually, through his persistent efforts, as you probably know, the British slave trade was abolished. And reflecting on these two dynamics, Michael Horton writes this. He says, Wilberforce may have been a moral reformer, but he did not expect the church to do the job that he was called by God to fulfill in the realm of politics. He would not have been as well-grounded a Christian if John Newton had not given his understandable zeal to his calling as a faithful pastor. Newton and Wilberforce realize that the amazing grace comes in two forms, saving grace through preaching and sacrament, and common grace through good laws and their enforcement, through cultural and artistic gifts, through scientific and economic advancement. That's the illustration. You see a Christian pastor and a Christian politician working for the same goal, but operating in two different realms. Realize that most of us in this room are not in pastoral ministry. We're in vocations like William Wilberforce, where we're a Christian and a politician, or a Christian and a teacher, or a Christian and a doctor, or a Christian and a business person. And we're called, the call is to work out what our dual citizenship means, what it looks like to have responsibilities in two kingdoms. There are things we owe Caesar, and there are things we owe God. That's Jesus, the second part of Jesus' answer. The distinction between Caesar and God. The distinction between these two kingdoms. But these kingdoms are not equal. And that's the third part of Jesus' answer. Third part of Jesus' answer is the ultimacy of God. Not just the legitimacy of Caesar, but the ultimacy of God. When Jesus says we ought to give to God what is God's, he's talking about God's ultimate claim on our lives. When Jesus takes a denarius and he says, whose image is on this? He's reasoning that because Caesar's image is on this denarius, it belongs to him. And so then what are the things that belong to God? What are the things that bear his image? Genesis 1.26 says, we as people are made in God's image. Do you see the profound implications we owe Caesar our money, but we owe God our very selves. God's kingdom is ultimate, Jesus is saying. We owe God our total allegiance. And it's more searching than any of our responsibilities to a human government. And that's why this is so subversive. This is subversive to any secular ruler who wants to be ultimate. The dictators and despots of this world who want to be ultimate, this is threatening. 
That's why the church is so threatening to the Communist Party in, in China. Threatens their power. Because Jesus is claiming here that the politics, that politics and the state are not ultimate. Caesar is not the Lord. There is another, another Lord, and he owns not just the coins, but the people. And this limits the power of the state. It is a threat to any ruler who fashions themselves as the ultimate ruler. But Christianity, though properly understood, brings an, also an important benefit to society. And this, we need to see this because many people are, these days are trying to get rid of religion, get, get rid of religion out of the public square because it's threatening. But they're blind to the benefits of Christianity. For example, for democratic self-government to work, citizens must have moral virtue. Right? If, if a culture doesn't have this moral virtue, it's part of its fabric, what happens? We're ruled by the mob. Right? If the culture has no moral virtue, we're, we're, we're ruled by the mob. We're ruled by raw power. Self-government requires morally virtuous people. George Washington, our first president, put it this way, virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. And then the next question is, where does this moral virtue come from? I would suggest to you that it doesn't come from laws. It doesn't come from government programs. I would suggest that it comes from religion. Religion and freedom to exercise religion cultivates the moral virtue needed for self-government. Here's something that's very interesting. Robert Putnam, a Harvard political scientist, found through empirical studies that there is one factor more than any other that predicts how generous, altruistic, altruistic, and civically involved a person will be. One factor that predicts, in other words, how, how much money a person will give, how much money and time they'll, they'll give, how often they'll, they'll want to help others, how uh, engaged they'll be with their community. Any guess as to what that factor is? It's not education, or income, or age, or race, or gender, or political persuasion. Robert Putnam found that it's regular involvement in a religious community. That's the factor. The ultimacy of God, in other words, doesn't work against the state. It works for the state. Because Christianity makes morally virtuous citizens, which is required for effective self-government. Sinful, selfish people cannot rule themselves without the culture ending up like the Lord of the Flies. You see, the ultimacy of God is a good thing for a culture. But at the same time, the ultimacy of God will challenge the state when the state becomes immoral. See, when the kingdom of God, man conflicts with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is ultimate. That's what Jesus is saying. God is the ultimate authority, not Caesar. You remember this moment when the Sanhedrin ordered Peter and the apostles not to spread the gospel? You remember how they responded? They said, we must obey God rather than men. Just in these verses, is saying there are many places where Christians can happily fulfill their duties to God and Caesar. But when there is a conflict, we must say, I must obey God rather than men. A few weeks ago on Monday Night Football, some of you will know about this. This is a big moment in our culture, actually, because football is so big. On Monday Night Football a few weeks ago, Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin made a routine tackle and then suddenly collapsed on the field due to cardiac arrest. When it became clear that it was not just an ordinary injury, that DeMar Hamlin was suddenly battling for his life and needed CPR, the whole stadium of thousands of fans went quiet. 
Players and coaches from both teams dropped their knees on the field in tears and in prayer. And there was a moment on NFL Live when ESPN analyst Dan Orlovsky, who is a Christian, decided to offer an impromptu prayer on live TV. And if you know ESPN, you know it's not a network known for its Christian sympathies. It's hard to remember a time when someone prayed live for nearly a minute on a major network. But if you saw this moment, you know, you know Dan Orlovsky and his ESPN chair said on air, everyone's been talking about prayer for DeMar, prayer for DeMar. And then he pivots. He says, maybe this is not the right thing to do, but it's just on my heart, and I want to pray for DeMar Hamlin right now. I'm going to do it out loud. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to bow my head. I'm going to pray for him. And he, he, from his ESPN share, he says, God, we come to you in these moments that we don't understand that are hard because we believe that your God and coming to you and praying to you has impact. And then he leads on public TV this prayer for Damar Hamlin. It's this moment that testifies the, to the ultimacy of God's kingdom. And I, I realize that there's this tension. I mean, in our workplaces, we're not supposed to talk about God, and, and religion is supposed to be kept out of the public square. But if God is ultimate, there are moments when we must bear witness to him. There are moments when we have to obey God, not men. The question for us this morning is this, which kingdom is ultimate in our lives? There are two kings who both want our allegiance, whether you're a Christian here this morning or not a Christian. There are two kings who want your allegiance. Caesar wants to accrue power. Jesus pours out his power in going to the cross. Caesar wants your money. Jesus wants you to give away your money to serve others. Caesar wants to lord it over you. Jesus lays down his life for you. Caesar is a temporary king. Now reduced to the annals of history. Jesus is an eternal king, reigning at the right hand of God. Which kingdom is ultimate in your life? Which king are you ultimately serving? Here's a test of which kingdom is ultimate in our lives. It's a simple one. If God's kingdom is ultimate in our lives, we can worship alongside people who are politically very different than us without despising them or looking down on them because we realize that politics are not ultimate. God's kingdom is ultimate, and our core identity, what binds us together, is God's kingdom, our joint citizenship in his kingdom. Our bonds in Christ are what bind us together. And so we hold the politics, we can hold the politics loosely. But you see, when the church divides over politics, it's evidence that politics have become ultimate for us. That our core values and identities are about the kingdom of men and not the kingdom of God. My friends, here are the politics of Jesus. The legitimacy of Caesar. The distinction between Caesar and God. But the ultimacy of God and his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you rule over all. We thank you for these deep bonds of Christ that knit our hearts together no matter the, the political differences, even in this room. Thank you for the deep bonds that we have in Christ, for the citizenship that we share in your kingdom. 
You call us to be citizens of two kingdoms, your kingdom ultimately, but for this time in the kingdoms of this world, would you give us the wisdom and the grace to fulfill our responsibilities in both? For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.